rest of us, we can turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22, we're going to look to the, to the end of the second paragraph, verse 37, 22 through 37. I'll read the text and then we'll, we'll open uh, with some prayer. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? And then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are of evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, and a good person out of his treasure, good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, there will be given account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We're, as you know, living in a very increasingly pagan culture. Uh, our national religion is, in many respects, forced upon all of us, uh, neo-paganism. That's reminded every June. And I want to just encourage you to be in prayer for one another, that we would be speaking truth and love, that we would not live by lies, but that we would uh, present the truth with love to those who are around us. And I want to encourage you as your pastor that, uh, that if you have to suffer for telling the truth, that your church family will stand with you. Uh, we want you to know that you are not alone in... Uh, your disfavor with what you see in your land, uh, it displeases the Lord, uh, but it is also something that you are not alone in seeing. 
And so we do live in a country, we do live in a land that is to set itself in opposition towards God, the true and living God. And uh, if you will, we're playing with fire. And I think that we also need to take that into account. Uh, the Pharisees themselves were playing with fire in making accusations against Jesus as being from Satan. And so we live in a land that is uh, in a dangerous and precarious place right now. And uh, I just want to just take a moment to reflect on that and pray uh, before I speak. Lord, we thank you for uh, the fact that you are truth and that we know you through the scriptures because your word is truth. I pray that we would not be living in denial of reality and that we would be speaking love to those around us who attempt to draw us into the narratives of their own non-reality, but that we would with love kindly point them to you who are the way, the truth, and the life. And I pray, Father, that our hearts would genuinely have compassion for those who are blinded, those who are uh, been vulnerable in the weakness of their age and uh, encouraged to do things to themselves in which uh, no one should ever do. And so I pray, Father, that we would be a light, that we would be love, that we would be compassion, but that we would also be truth. And so, Father, I ask that as we look into the word this morning, we would be encouraged that you are the spirit giver. You are the one who can regenerate. You are the one who can change hearts and lives and that we would put our faith and trust in you and bring uh, the gift of the Spirit through conversation about the cross and resurrection to those we meet. And so we ask for your grace as we look into the Word this morning. We ask for your guidance. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I heard these words this week. Don't be burning right now. No burning in Nova Scotia. Stop flickering your cigarette butts out your window. Just stop it. That was Premier Tim Houston of Nova Scotia, my beloved province that I was born in in Canada, uh, talking about the difficulty that his province is undergoing right now due to the dryness and pervasive wildfires that have been flaming uh, this week. And to be honest with you, that's uh, quite a, a significant thing to, for me to hear because as I grew up in Nova Scotia, uh, we saw more days of, of rain than we ever saw of sun. And uh, my cousin who lives near Halifax had to evacuate with about 16,000 other families and people. Um, and uh, their home, thankfully, I've learned, has been spared. But about 200 other homes have been destroyed uh, through fire. Um, it's been dry, not just uh, here in northeast Pennsylvania. It's been dry in a lot of places. And... Uh, the uh, director of natural resources up there said, uh, I'm praying for any type of precipitation at this point. And I know everyone up here shares in that thought. And uh, dryness is something that we have to take note of and we have to obviously be careful of and burning at any point is uh, always risky. And I have to personally take note of that because I, I am a redneck from Northeast Pennsylvania and I like to do a little uh, trash burning. And I have to be careful just along with everyone else. And, uh, but to play with fire is never wise. But especially during drought, and uh, the Pharisees, who were sun-baked, they were parched, were playing with fire, and it was crazy. 
they should have been drinking down the wisdom, the waterfall of wisdom that was coming from Jesus, but they were resisting and they were becoming parched and dried, and really they were playing with fire. Now the conversation that Jesus has with the Pharisees in this text that I read covers what we might call, and you've probably heard it before, the unpardonable sin. And as we look at this text, we're going to learn a little bit more about that, but we're also going to see Jesus in contrast to the Pharisees who are dry and parched, they're evil. On the other hand, Jesus is demonstrate his goodness, his wisdom, and Matthew ties this conversation to Jesus' anointing in the previous paragraph. We, we, we week to week, we walk paragraph by paragraph, and so it would be good for us just to note that back in verse 18, Matthew talked about God's servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And that's a reference to his earlier baptism in which the spirit descended and alighted upon him and rested upon him. Now this character is being displayed and Jesus is giving the spirit to others and healing them and relieving of their demonic oppression and in this text we we get to see a little bit more about the Holy Spirit theologically but we also get to see the practicality of what it's like to have the Holy Spirit take take over our hearts and to see him dwelling within us there's contrastive elements here and you see Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and there's some negative aspects he's pointing out, but there's a positive contrast that we can observe in how Jesus relates to them. Sometimes it's been said that the Holy Spirit is the silent member of the Trinity. And that is because he seeks to promote the glory of the Son of Man. But we ought not let that fool us into thinking that the Spirit is a lesser person within the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is very active in his work, and we get to see the rule of Christ engaging in the world around us as we see the activity of the Spirit working. And this is something that the Pharisees refused to see, and they were, it was a dangerous predicament that they were in, because they refused to acknowledge the active working of the Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. And so the idea I want us to see in this text is we see Jesus being like the, the Spirit giver. We want to see that the active rule of Jesus is seen in the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit working uh, in this world. And there's two ways in this text that we can see this active rule of Jesus in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And they're attached to warnings. And to resist the work of the Holy Spirit is to play with fire. It's dangerous. And so we want to see verse 22 to 32. I'm going to show you how the Holy Spirit is actively gathering people. He is actively gathering people. 
Now, it's attached to a miracle, and this miracle of a, uh, a deaf man uh, who could not speak, he was also a, a blind man, we get to see something that might on the surface seem a little bit fam- excuse me, familiar. Last summer, I had taught through a very compact string of 10 miracles. 10 very, you know, rapid fire miracles. And the very last miracle that Jesus did was in Matthew 9, 32 through 34. And we see something very similar occur. And I'm just going to review these verses. Verse 32 says, And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Now, if you remember what we just read, we see something very similar. There is um, someone who is his unable to speak. He's demon-possessed. The people react very similarly. Uh, in the earlier account, uh, had we ever seen anything like this in Israel? Here they're wondering, is this the, is this the son of David who is, who is to come? And uh, yet there's a little bit of a difference in some of the details. Uh, the prince of demons is referenced in the earlier version. And in this account, the name of Beelzebul or Beelzebub is given to And there's some extended dialogue going on. This leads me to believe that these are a similar, if not the same incident. And the added detail and dialogue are vital for Matthew's purposes as he's presenting a picture of who Jesus is. In the earlier account, there was an intended contrast between faith and unbelief. Now here, Jesus is t- it, Matthew is showing us through Jesus' conversation why the Pharisees don't believe. And he's going to show us the, the, the why and the how of the Holy Spirit uh, actively working and gathering people. So in verse 22 to verse 24, what we see is that the Spirit... The power of the Spirit is regenerative. It's regenerative. That word means to recreate. It's to to take that which is dead and give it life and set it into motion again. And this miracle is, is very succinct, but Jesus heals by removing the underlying root issue. There were physical presenting issues But down deep inside, there was the demonic uh, uh, indwelling that caused this blindness and this inability to speak. And Jesus does this remarkable miracle, and people are overwhelmed by what they're seeing. They're ecstatic, and they're wondering, could this be the son of David? Is this the one that John the Baptist was talking about? Like, John was wondering, trying to connect the dots. Is this the one that they've been looking for? And so there is like a, almost like a social contagion that takes place. I don't know if you've thought any, to any depth about how word spreads and how people instantly come together on certain 
topics or themes uh, in our society. I know that in the last three years, we, we all kind of came together and we all acted like one person doing all the COVID measures and everything. How quickly some of those things take place, how quickly fears take place, how quickly courage takes place. Uh, after 9-11, there was such a social contagion of courage and national unity that took place. We acted like almost like one person. Well, social contagion is a phenomena in which emotions and conditions spread spontaneously through a group or some social network. And the power of the Holy Spirit can have a contagious effect through a social network. And historians call this an awakening. Historically, there have been times in our national history where people become aware of God's working in particular communities and they become extra sensitive and wonder whether God would be doing something in their community as well. And in the process, what they do is they're opening themselves up to the influence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that may be at work in communities. Now, during the Great Awakening, there were those in New England in the religious leadership that did the same thing that the Pharisees did here. Uh, in New England, there, there were pastors, if you can believe it, that would spread gossip and smear the pulpit ministries of others who were bringing the good news during the time of an awakening. And they, they tried to silence by influencing governors to, to institute fines for people who are preaching outside of their parishes. Uh, they, even, they even brought up prison time and they expelled people from, from like say Connecticut and uh, if they were up in Massachusetts, they'd have to be taken across the border and put into like wagons and transversed across the borders. And it just reminds me, there's nothing new under the sun. Whenever the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit is active, there will always be Satan's influence trying to thwart and trying to slow down the work of the Spirit happening in communities. Now, the Pharisees slander Jesus, saying he's got power from Satan himself. Beelzebul or Beelzebub, whichever your translation goes, it was a common name for the chief demon in Jewish thinking. It was a, a slaying word. It was a slander word towards Satan. And it literally means the Lord of the flies. And if you've been out to the farm and you see a manure pile that's pretty fresh, you're going to see flies hovering over top of it. Those bottle flies are nasty. And they hover and they torment those who are working on the farm the horses are constantly switching their tails they're almost like demonic and so this is the picture this is what the attribute that the pharisees were laying upon jesus that that jesus is simply you know doing magic by the influence of the lord of the flies satan himself and the attempt to thwart the regenerative work and to slow down the social consciousness, the contagion, the potential for people to wake up and say, 
I should be listening for God's spirit working within my heart too is an act of demonic influence. It is an anti-regenerative activity. It's demonic. And I want to emphasize this morning that any teaching that encourages others to withdraw faith from the Lord Jesus Christ is against the Spirit. Now, in this contrast, though, we see the very positive truth that, that the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit is regenerative. It's awakening. It's moving the heart to recognize who Jesus is. And it's a very positive act of the Holy Spirit. And it speaks in the next little segment of verses as Jesus kind of tries to kind of unwork their, their faulty logic. What we see is Jesus emphasizing that the ministry or the mission of the Holy Spirit is that of unity. So it's regenerative. There is this regenerative quality that you can't miss. But there is also this unifying aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 27... I'll refresh our memory by reading the argument chain uh, in verse, uh, verse 25, excuse me. Uh, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons... By Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Notice that in verse 27 that Jesus asks a very profound question about the spirit world. And he says, well, if this is true, if you, can't, you can't have opponents you know, within the, the territory of the demonic world working against each other. It just doesn't make sense. And then he asks, well, by whom do your sons cast out demons? He's not talking about literal sons. He's talking about like those who follow the Pharisees, those who are, are kind of like their offspring, if you will, kind of their, their disciples. And he acknowledges that the Pharisees themselves are able, apparently, to exercise demons. Now, I want us to note that Jesus does not attribute their exorcism to evil powers. This on its own is not itself a proof for truth. In other words, an ability to manipulate the spirit world is in its own way kind of neutral. Because if Jesus is able to do this, and even disciples of the Pharisees are able to do this, then what is the, what is the, what is the central issue here? And Jesus makes this significant point that where the spirit is taking people is more important than the activity of the spirit itself. 
Are people being led towards a view of Christ that draws towards unity? Or is there a division away from Christ? And what he's saying is, look, the spirit elements are at, they're important, but they're not as essential as false teaching about Christ. And I think this is important and helpful for us to realize. Sometimes power is granted in the spirit world to false teachers to test even Christians whether we are Christians or whether we are not. There are Pharisees, if you will, out there who are attempting to draw people away from Christ and some false teaching is designed to do just that. They made a claim that Christ was not pure. He was not holy. And what they were doing is they were trying to draw people away by their words and teaching about what Jesus was and who he was. They were trying to cause division in people's minds so that they were confused. And in the middle of this logic change, there's a straightforward statement about the mission of the Spirit and how you can test the spirits, how you can know whether spiritual activity is from God or not. And in verse 28, he says, And if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, there's a unifying effect that takes place. There is a, a, a making of someone whole so that they can see Jesus for who he is. The Spirit unifies, unifies those followers around Christ. Now, this text obviously talks about disunity and division within kingdoms. And you might recognize that from your history that this was a text of scripture that Abraham Lincoln used on the eve of the Civil War to warn our nation that we were on the brink of disaster. And uh, many in his day thought it was a political blunder for him to, to quote this, this kind of hard, absolute contrast. And uh, he said to his law partner in defense of, you know, he had reviewed his, 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 his uh, speech, and, and Lincoln said to his law partner, he said, the proposition is indisputably true, and I will deliver it as I have written. I want to use some universally known figure expressed in simple language that it may strike home to the minds of men and to rouse them to the peril of these times. This has been called the house divided speech. And many think that he lost his own Senate seat uh, in the U.S. Senate because of it. But in the end, it gave him the presidency. Because it's absolutely indisputable. And by its equal and opposite conclusion, we know truth and the spirit by unity that it creates. Unity around the truth and disunity will be around error and non-truth and this is i believe what you can you can extrapolate you can draw out of this text yes we're seeing the negative 
against the Pharisees, but we're also seeing something very positive about the work of the Holy Spirit. It is to draw people towards unity in the truth. Verse 30, Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, Jesus asks us here not just to side with him, but also to gather with him. And the Holy Spirit's mission is to create unity, unity, unity. It doesn't create uniformity, a faux unity. It creates a true unity about Christ and a love for Christ above all else. Now, I want to move on to a, a third area in which we can see the act of the Holy Spirit gathering and see his activity uh, in, in the world. And that is in verse 31 to 32. We see that the essence of the Spirit is love, is love. Verse 31 to 32, initially you might scratch your head and say, well, how do you see that? He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Blasphemy is technically slander against God. And because slander against the Holy Spirit finds no forgiveness, it's often been called the unpardonable sin. Now, if you've heard this term before, it's probably caused some of us in this room a little bit of anxiety, wondering whether or not we have, in fact, at one point in our lives committed this sin. Well, there have been typically two interpretations of this that have arisen through the years and uh, one of those interpretations is that it was only possible to commit the sin when Christ was present and actively working with the spirit in that day that's one interpretation there's another interpretation a stream of of thought which thinks about this as a sin which continues to be a possibility today now, which is it? Which might it be? Well, my view, I believe, is that the unpardonable sin occurs when opposition becomes a settled rejection of the Spirit's testimony to Jesus. What do I mean? I mean that this is not an occasional incident in one's life, but rather it is a pronounced way of life. And the Pharisees, for example, Jesus is speaking a hard word, but it is a word of warning that they are very close, like, like Saul of Tarsus was very close. He was in danger of committing an unpardonable sin. You know, Peter denied the Lord several times, and yet he was restored. But this, what Jesus is talking about, is a radical refusal to be converted and follow Christ. It's like Pharaoh. 
who boldly marches into the middle of the Red Sea with defying all logic, he's basically become insane in his steadfast, settled refusal to respond to Christ or to God who, who is ruling over him. It's very aggressive. It is, a, it is a malevolent hatred that's waged. It's irrational. And it's opposite to the love of God. It is opposite to the love of God. And that's where we connect with the Spirit. It is the, it is the essence of the Holy Spirit to communicate love within the hearts of his people. And when you want to see the this work of the Spirit active, you see him moving to regenerate, you see him moving to, to produce um, unity and also to express love, love for God that flows into the love of one's neighbor. There is a wideness in God's forgiveness that's communicated in this text. A wideness and breathtaking. It's, it's vaster than the Grand Canyon in its breadth. But there is literally, in what Jesus is saying, there's really literally nothing that could prevent our eternal salvation except for this one thing. Trying to ruin Jesus in the eyes of other people and having such a malevolent hatred for him that you want to destroy everything associated with God? Now, I think J.I. Packer was correct. There's a lot of Christians who fear that they've committed the unpardonable sin. And I think by that very anxiety, demonstrate that they haven't done so. We have to get our eyes off of ourselves and back to Christ. And that will relieve our hearts of the anxiety we may feel. Well, the active rule of Jesus is, I believe, seen in, his, in the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. And when we see the Spirit working and changing people's hearts and lives, we can see the work going on. We can see the unity that's starting to be built and the love that flows out of them. But the Holy Spirit is actively as well, not just active in gathering of people, he is also actively in purifying of people. Verse 33 through 34. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. And the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I want us to see verse 33 and verse 34 that many will not want the Holy Spirit to purify them. Many are not really wanting the Holy Spirit to purify them. The Pharisees' malice was so deep and so set in opposition that they were missing the significant call of Jesus to convert and to respond to the Spirit and be born again. 
Jesus, in this analogy of the two trees, is saying to them, stop playing around. Either you get converted, you make the whole tree good, or you get out, make the tree bad. But don't play games. A tree is actually known by its fruit. It's such a commonly understood saying that I hardly have to even describe what it means. And Jesus in his own life is vindicated as a good tree. He is bearing good fruit. The Pharisees weren't doing well. In fact, they were digging their way to hell. They're a pack of vipers, Jesus says. And that's what they are. They're demonstrating that their, their father is Satan himself. You know, it's hard to hear Jesus talk about people as a pack of vipers. Didn't he just, didn't he tell us to turn the other cheek and to speak well? You know, not to call people an idiot and not to call people, you know, a fool and things like that. I think what we're seeing here is that Jesus is taking a very severe tact as a way to warn. And some people with a severe tact can be warned and they can be shaken awake. You think of, again, I mentioned Saul of Tarsus. He was shooken awake to realize that he was, he was fighting against Jesus. He was in danger of committing the unpardonable sin. And if Jesus hadn't have violently entered into his, his life, he very well would have committed the unpardonable sin like Pharaoh and gone into a Christless eternity. And Jesus identifies the root here, the source, the heart, verse 34 and 35. You see Jesus talking about the treasure in the heart. And it's a metaphor of that fountain, you know. And even James uses that picture of the fountain spewing salt water and fresh water. And it just doesn't make sense. And it's the same image here. What's bubbling out, what's coming out of the heart is going to reflect whether you're a good tree or a a bad tree. And what we love most will become evident over time. And Jesus is expressing a deep warning. Don't resist the purifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Don't do that. And there is truthfully some people who will not respond to the purifying call of the Spirit to change and become like Christ. But yet, thankfully, verse 35, I see that some will be purified by the Holy Spirit. Verse 35, we read this. And the good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good fruit. And I see that there is, in this implicitly, that there is that there will be some. Yes, there's going to be division. There's going to be some who won't. But there will be a unity around Christ. There will be a unity around holiness. There will be people who will gather and be purified by the work of the Holy Spirit. The true church, though, is not immune to sin. And the church can become entangled in worldly affairs. Likewise, true Christians will still battle sin every day of their life until they see Christ. Some will even fall into grievous sin. However, neither the true church nor a true believer lives a life marked 
by overt godlessness and immorality. It doesn't define who they are over the long term. Individual moments of fall do not, do not create the identity for a person. It is over the lifetime that they demonstrate that they are progressively being purified from sin. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. But I also recognize that a thistle is still going to be a thistle. You can call it a rose, but it will still be a thistle. We have to be careful, though, at the same time that we not blame sheep because of some actions that some goats have done. There are people within a church that don't always present as they ought. And there be at times we ought not burn down the wheat field for a few tares that are sprinkled in the mix. It is very common for people who have bad experiences with professing Christians to say, I'm done with the whole thing. But what they're not seeing is the truth that those folks perhaps may not be, they may not be sheep at all. Just because someone says that they are doesn't mean that they actually are sheep. It requires a great deal of wisdom to be able to test the spirit and to assess, assess what's going on. During the Great Awakening in colonial New England, which I mentioned earlier, there was great power in the preaching. And the Holy Spirit, it was communicated, delivered people not just from the condemnation of sin. People in that day heard that they were also delivered from the dominion of sin. And people recognized that they needed the work of the Holy Spirit to deliver them from the enslaving tendencies of sin. And regeneration is that miraculous work, but it is an ongoing purification work of the Spirit. And apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit through response to the gospel, people will never in the end truly depend upon the Spirit at all. When I was a young child, I asked Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I'm scared to tell you how young I was. Through the years, I personally struggled with the assurance of my own salvation because my heart gradually was, was trying to fight and reorient towards myself and, and, and wanted me to take my eyes off of Christ. I remember in elementary school, I was so awful to one of my teachers. I was ungovernable in her class. And it, it, it wounded my soul gradually thinking, and it caused me to question, am I actually truly a believer? In junior high, my heart wandered in many different directions. But it wasn't until I arrived at early adulthood when I really had peace. Because I had to come to terms with my own pride. I was putting faith in my ability to purify myself. To be able to keep up the evidences of my salvation. Rather than a heartfelt dependency upon the Holy Spirit, who alone is the one who gives us the power to change. What Christ requires is not a precise and complete perfection. 
What he requires is a simple and sincere affection. He wants to look into our hearts and see that we love him more than these. Do you love me more than these? The world, the fishing, the nets. Do you love me? I know you're not going to be perfect, Peter, but do you love me more than this? That's what God is looking for. Looking to him. Nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to the cross we cling. It's a wholehearted dependence upon Jesus who gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is a danger, though, of being careless, and this is my last point this morning. There is a danger of being potentially careless with the words, with our words about Jesus. Verse 36 and verse 37, let's look at these. Uh, he says in verse 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words, you will be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. That's more that, that what's out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's what's going to bring validity to whether or not the Holy Spirit is working or not. Well, the Pharisees were playing with fire. And the point of Jesus is not that it was just a casual or thoughtlessness per se, but it was much more that they were embracing something that was absolutely false and acting as though it was true. He's not saying, you know, you, that you have to walk around life with like a sobriety that you can't enjoy a good joke. It's not what Jesus is saying. Carelessness is in the sense of illogic. Jesus was clearly a good man. No one should have come to the conclusion that he was working under the influence of the demonic world. Yet they were maligning his character, and it was foolish to attribute to him the works of Satan. Yet I want to help us to understand that our culture is in danger of doing the very same thing. We can deny the truth if we're not careful about the claims that Jesus made about himself. And there are some around us that need to be shocked from their slumber to realize you can't say that Jesus was simply a good man. He was more than that. There are a lot of people that we mingle with that will very welcomely say to us because they want to build a bridge towards us to say, oh, I am thankful for Jesus and influence and the positive good that he did. But they can't come to the conclusion. They can't, they become illogical and they let that be the end of it. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity these words. He said, I'm trying to, here to prevent anyone from trying to say the really foolish thing that Jesus is often described as. He says, I'm people will say this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we may not see, say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself. The Pharisees were making that jump. 
to say that he was the devil himself. And so there is a choice that we all have to make. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You think about it. A demon-possessed man who was blind and couldn't talk. He opened his eyes. He sees the one who healed him. He's delivered by this person he's never seen before. What do you think his words are going to be? When he puts two and two together. You know, he could see, he could say what the Pharisees refused to see and say. And this man's deliverance sparked an awareness amongst the crowd that Jesus is Lord. And the active rule of God was upon them. The spirit was active and moving. And this is something we ought to, on the one hand, take warning from, but we ought to also have encouragement from. That when we see God working in people's hearts, we just had a baptism a couple of weeks ago. That was encouraging to see God working in people's hearts. That's a movement of God's rule on this earth. And it should fill us with a joy of expectation that if we look around us, we can see other evidences of God working in this world. So I want us to be encouraged also that as we look at this portrait of Jesus, who is the spirit giver, that we would also ask him that he would heal our own hearts too. We can ask him and know that he will send his spirit to heal our own hearts of whatever demonic distress we are experiencing, whatever influence of our flesh is upon us he is doing a work of saving and gathering people and he is doing a work of purifying of hearts we have much that we can be thankful for and most of all we have opportunity to give thanks for the active rule of christ as we see it amongst us and around us let's pray